and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angle on these different issues when it is relevant. On this week's Current Account, we're going to update, technically, Current Account number 57, where we talked about the effect that the Israel-Hamas war could have economically and financially on the Middle East, as well as potentially on the broader global economy. So we're now four months into this conflict, and there have been a lot of developments since we last talked to my IIF colleagues, Garbus Aradian, who is the chief economist for the MENA region, and Ivan Bagaro, economist for the IIF. Garbus and Ivan actually just returned from a trip to the region, and just a few days ago, provided a paper that goes deeply into what the continuation of this war might mean for economics. First of all, Ivan and Garbus, thank you very much for joining us. And I'm just going to start with Garbus. So we talked back in November off of a paper that you had written in October about a few different scenarios for how the war in Israel and Hamas might continue. So I guess the main thing is like, how has it developed? Obviously, a little bit from a context perspective from what's actually happened with the war, but then also more probably relevantly to our audience is how has it developed from an economics perspective? Garbus? Thank you, Clay. Let us uh, recap what we said in, uh, in our report uh, of October 26. We highlighted three scenarios. The first one contained military operation limited to the Gaza Strip targeting Hamas leadership. The second one was the conflict widens to uh, regional war. And the third one was agreement on a ceasefire followed by the release of all hostages and negotiations for peace. It turned out in the past few weeks or uh, months that this third scenario is not valid anymore because the Prime Minister of Israel, Netanyahu, has clearly indicated that he wants to continue the war and he wants to eradicate Hamas totally. So for this reason, in our updated report, we are focusing on two scenarios, which are the first two scenarios of the previous report. In the first scenario, we say this is our baseline scenario. With probability, we give it around 70%. We assume a containment of the conflict in the sense that the war will be confined only to Gaza. And we also assume that the Western strikes, United States and the UK, will succeed in sufficiently degrading the Houthis' military capabilities. This would allow for the resumption of trade across the Red Sea in the next couple of months. We also assume continuation of limited clashes between Israel and Hezbollah, which is the main wild card here. And that brings me to the other scenario, which is the pessimistic scenario. We give it uh, a probability of uh, 30%. I would say in the past two days, development of the clashes between Israel and Hezbollah has intensified, most likely the risk has increased of a wider war because recently Israel attacked one of the major cities in south of Lebanon, killing several civilians. So in this scenario, we assume that the U.S. 
and the UK strikes will not degrade the capacity of the Houthis and their attacks on shipping in the Red Sea continues or even intensifies. The conflict between Israel and Hezbollah escalates to a full-blown war, including the launching of rockets and missiles into Israel cities and strategic targets and Israeli heavy bombardment of major cities in Lebanon, including the capital, Beirut. The Houthis may also target oil tankers. So far, they haven't targeted oil tankers. In this scenario, we say they will target oil tankers and carriers which transport raw materials, metals, food products, etc. While the Iranian officials have so far indicated they will not interfere in the war, a war between Hezbollah and Israel could drag Iran to the conflict to some extent. And this is the major risk of a widespread war in the region, which has implications also on shipment of oil, whether it's in the Red Sea or in the Strait of Hormuz, which is the border between Iran and Oman, where most ships pass through. Almost 30% of the global oil export pass through Strait of Hormuz. Okay, so your second scenario seems like a parade of horribles. Yvonne, you were just there. I mean, when you were talking to, obviously, people that are market players, policymakers, analysts in the region, what was their take on some of this? And I don't mean the 70% versus 30% scenario, but more, you know, how do they see this actually affecting different economies in the region? And I remember in our conversation back in November, we talked a fair amount about Egypt. So I would assume there's impact on Egypt. There's impact, obviously, on Israel, Lebanon, as Garbus mentioned. So as you were conversing, what were some of their thoughts about what's happening? Thanks, Tay, for having us again. Yes, we had very good conversations with members in the region from both the private and public sector. With regards to the conflict in Gaza, I would say we, we came back with three main takeaways. The first is that there's a widespread belief that the war is going to remain constricted to Gaza, and it will not directly impact GCC countries. This belief stems from a variety of reasons that the rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia would insulate Saudi Arabia and other GCC countries from the conflict. Also, there's a belief that Iran wants to avoid direct confrontation with Israel and or the United States and will not give the go-ahead to increase tensions beyond set red lines. And finally, GC countries you know, broadly want to move away from the many regional conflicts that have had over the years and want to focus more on economic development and diversification, which at the end of the day is the main priority for these countries. On the economic side, I think most of our members stated that the GC country will remain resilient, especially the non-oil sector. Regardless of, of the regional conflict, private sector sentiment is relatively strong. In the case of Saudi Arabia, the biggest country in the region, it's been helped a lot by a recent construction boom that's been led by massive giga projects, most notably the Neon City in the Red Sea. And also in Saudi Arabia, there's been a gradual opening over the last few years that has brought many benefits to the country, such as higher wages, more female participation in the workforce, and Western expats bringing in expertise and training. And then the third takeaway is that though the war has not directly impacted the region, it has had negative consequences. So the first kind of one of the main things we've heard was that there was kind of renewed supply headwinds in, in the region. 
GC countries were already dealing with supply shortages of labor coming in from India, and now they're dealing with shortages of goods that have been attributed to the conflict in the Red Sea. This has fed into inflation. There's been a sharp uptick in construction costs, both in labor and in commodities like steel and, and rebar. However, at the moment, higher input prices are not being passed on to consumers, but that could change in the near future. In Saudi Arabia, FDI remains subdued, and this may be exasperated by the conflict. With regards to tourism, tourism will also be heavily impacted, which will hurt a lot of the countries in the region. We are already seeing a decreased number of tourists. There's real concern of the impact of a war on this sector, especially since tourism is a main avenue for GC countries to diversify away from oil. And then finally, and this is something you mentioned, there's, there's big worries surrounding Egypt. Egypt is the biggest country in the Middle East with a population of over 100 million. Many GCC countries, especially the sovereign wealth funds, have a lot of investments in Egypt. The country was already in a pretty precarious financial condition and stands to be heavily impacted by the war in Gaza. So like other countries, tourism will be heavily affected. Last year, Egypt saw record tourist arrivals into the country and record revenues. This helped the current account greatly, but we will see that diminished this next fiscal year. Egypt will also have falling revenue use from the Suez Canal. Last year, Suez Canal receipts accounted for 2% of GDP. And, you know, we've already seen a pretty big significant drop in terms of transit calls in the Suez Canal this year. And any significant stress in Egypt could have serious repercussions and a destabilizing effect on the region as a whole. All right. Thanks, Yvonne. Now, what was interesting for me, at least in your answer, I mean, with the very notable exception of Egypt, is it actually sounded like some of your conversations were slightly more optimistic. But we all know that there, of course, is a quite pessimistic side to this. And, and Garbus, I think, tried to put that into context of, of scenario planning, and you just do the best you can on that. But the one scenario, and it doesn't have to be exactly, you can kind of play off the scenarios, but how do you see this affecting supply chains? Because one thing we saw in the post-pandemic environment was the lockup of supply chains clearly had a big effect on trade, it had a big effect on inflation, most likely had an impact on growth. And then, of course, it had an impact on commodities, which then was, of course, exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I kind of want to go back to Garbus on commodities. So maybe, Yvonne, if you could actually focus a little bit more on the supply chains and whether or not how much the conflict is hurting them. Sure. So, I mean, since, since last time we spoke, the biggest development has definitely been the attacks on ships in the Red Sea. They have had a heavy impact on ships crossing the Suez Canal. According to the IMF's Port Watch, which, which kind of tracks passing through, through the Suez Canal, transit calls are currently around 50% lower than they were back in November. So transit calls fell from an average of 75 per day in November to around 40 in February. The rerouting of shipments towards the Cape of Good Hope has caused freight costs to increase as well. So freight costs are currently almost three times as much in February as they were in November. However, if you look at prices, prices remain far below those seen during the pandemic. And under our baseline, we don't see supply chain problems affecting global trade. This is primarily because demand remains fairly weak, especially from the two biggest players, the U.S. and China. In the U.S., excess savings are falling. Real negative interest rates are affecting demand. We saw the latest report in January that we saw lower consumption. And in the case of China, the recovery, especially in the property sector, has remained subdued, which will keep commodity prices low. We think this view is supported by, by the high-frequency data. So oil prices have remained at around $8 a barrel. Non-fuel commodities have also remained stable. And in the note, we cite this uh, global supply chain pressure index that's created by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. 
So basically, if you look at that index, supply chain pressures are currently at their historical average. It's been increasing over the past few months, but we don't see it really reaching anywhere near the levels that we saw post-pandemic. In terms of supply chains, the primary pressures we are seeing are in Europe, especially in manufacturing, as the Swiss Canal is, the, is an important route linking Asia with Europe. And, you know, obviously the big caveat here is that this all depends on, on geopolitical developments. If there is an expanded regional conflict, this would have serious repercussion on supply chains and, and global trade as a whole. All right. That's fascinating. And I think that's really important that you disaggregated or you tried to figure out ways to disaggregate because it, it doesn't impact everybody the same, no matter which way we're thinking about it in terms of our scenarios. Um, so Garbus, maybe the same type of question for you, but except for let's maybe focus a bit more on commodities. Obviously, the Gulf countries are some of the biggest commodity suppliers in the world. And the uh, the Red Sea and the Strait of Hormuz is where a lot of things happen. So maybe if you can kind of go into that a little more. So let me highlight again the two scenarios related to the commodities. In our baseline scenario, we're saying that the attacks on shipping in the Red Sea will have little impact on commodity prices because oil tankers are continuing to flow almost more than 50% of the oil tankers are using the Suez Canal, and the rest, particularly Exxon and the British Petroleum Companies, they are using Cape of Good Hope, which is sailing around South Africa. In terms of quantity of oil supplied to the market, it's still the same. However, it's taking a little bit longer. So, so far, there hasn't been any significant impact on uh, energy prices, whether it's oil or natural gas. For example, in case of oil, oil prices hovered in a narrow range between $75 to $82. Same thing with uh, natural gas. And other commodities also are highly correlated with energy prices. If energy prices stay at the current level, we are not expecting any significant increase in commodity prices. So what are the implications for this to the global economy? If we talk about the impact on the global economy, which is in our baseline scenario, we're saying global growth would moderate from 3.1% calculated from purchasing power parity exchange rates. This is the figure, actual figure from the IMF. It will moderate from 3.1% in 2023 to 2.8 in 2024, because high real interest rates and slightly tighter fiscal policies in advanced economies will restrain economic activity. Now, what happens in the United States? The United States economy was the best performer among advanced economies last year. It grew by about 2.5% in 2023, and we expect that growth to moderate to 2%. Such slower growth will encourage the Fed to start easing its policy sometimes in May or June. The main requirement is that the, there should be some indications that the U.S. economy is slowing down, that unemployment is edging up a little bit, and there are several leading indicators that the Fed is monitoring closely. Now, what happens in the euro area? Euro area growth will be very small. Uh, it could be less than 1%, even in the baseline scenario. And some of the 
euro economies could flirt with recession, particularly Germany and other major countries, Italy maybe. We also expect China's growth to slow, something around 5.2% last year, to less than 5%, I would say around 4.8%. And that's mainly to the continued downturn in the property sector, which will weigh on demand and activity. What is more important in this scenario is the evolution of inflation. Inflation in advanced and emerging economies will continue to decline towards their targets of 2% for advanced economies by the end of this year. That would encourage central banks in Europe, in the United States, in the UK to start with the easing of monetary policy. So that's under the assumption of no escalation of the war in the Middle East. So let's move to the global economic outlook under the assumption of a widespread war. What we are assuming in this scenario is that oil prices escalate to more than $100. We're working with a, an average number of $120 per barrel, which is more than 40% increase from the baseline scenario. It has a major implication in the sense that other commodity prices could rise also. In such a scenario, we will see inflationary pressures increasing in advanced economies and also in emerging economies. With the implication is that respective central bank will hesitate of easing their policy rates. Instead of easing mid this year, most likely it could be postponed to end of 2024. In such an environment where you have high real interest rates, accompanied by tighter fiscal policy, the global economy could be lower by around 0.5 percentage point of GDP. So instead of growing 2.8% in 2024, it could grow by 2.4 or 2.3%, with the major impact being on European economies. Many of the major European economies will go through recession defined as successive two quarters of contraction in output. Emerging economies will be less impacted because most of the emerging economies are commodity exporters like in Latin America, Brazil, Mexico, Peru, and others. And Middle East also could benefit a little bit from higher oil prices. But the question for the Middle East, whether the sharp drop in oil production will be reflected in much higher uh, energy prices, which could compensate for the loss of oil export in volume terms. So even Middle Eastern economies would suffer. For example, uh, we take the countries which are directly involved in the war. Israel's economy could contract by 4.5%. Lebanese economy by more than 20%. It will be devastating because bombardment of the capital and other cities in Lebanon will destroy what remained from the infrastructure in Lebanon after four years of contraction. Egyptian economy will slow down even further. The GCC economies most likely will be less impacted. Of course, non-oil economic activity could moderate, but nonetheless, it could be around 3% or even more.
China and India, which are net importers of oil, could have their growth rate at least one percentage point lower than the baseline scenario. Garbus, thank you very much for that answer. It just goes to show that the importance of diplomacy in trying to find a solution set for this region is going to have a tremendous impact. Now, it has a tremendous impact, first and foremost, on a humanitarian situation in the region. Secondly, on just actually some of the geopolitics that are involved, and, and which are quite complicated, and you tried to go through it, and I'm sure it's even more complicated than you just had to do in that wrap-up. And third, and probably more on our narrow focus on economics and finance, it clearly has an impact on that, because some of this scenario that you laid out second scenario, and the minority scenario in some respects, is the one that could have a significant impact on the global economy even, whether it's on inflation, interest rates, or economic growth. Anyway, I do want to thank both you and Yvonne for giving us some very, very sober analysis on the region and the global economy based on this ongoing conflict. So thank you very much. So with that, now it's time for my three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways from the conversation with Garbus and Yvonne, two things I'm looking forward to, and my one sports fact. My three main takeaways are dependent a lot on scenarios. So takeaway one is, look, under the current baseline scenario that Garbus and Yvonne have pointed out, which is kind of basically a status quo getting slightly better over time, it still has a pretty significant impact on Israel, Lebanon, and Egypt. Second, if you look at supply chains, the pressures in that, again, baseline scenario are not that bad. But two caveats. One, it's not that bad globally, but it actually can have an impact, particularly on different parts of the world, even under the baseline scenario. And I'm thinking here about Europe which is a little more dependent on the region than is countries like the United States. But maybe more important caveat is if we turn towards the more horrific scenario that Garbus laid out pretty well, I think, it could have a major impact on not just Europe, but on other parts of the world. And then finally, the impact on commodity prices, again, is dependent on what type of scenario we're talking about. I think Garbus laid out if under the current baseline scenario, it's not really all that much. That doesn't mean there won't be volatility. It just means that probably overall it won't have a humongous impact. On the other hand, if things deteriorate and deteriorate pretty significantly, you could have a significant impact. Garbus talked about a 40% increase in commodity prices. That's large. And that will almost assuredly have an impact on the global economy, inflation, etc. So the two things I'm looking forward to, one is to see how this situation in particularly the southern part of Gaza in a place called Rafa starts winding its way down or up. And But what I mean by that is that this is right on the border of Israel and Egypt. It could have an impact on how Egypt views Israel in this equation, and it could have an impact on how other countries, including even the United States, view Israel. And next is... How do we see the U.S. engagement with Israel develop? The United States, since this war started, has been Israel's firmest supporter. But it has come under pressure because of how tough the war has gone. 
And so how the U.S. continues its diplomacy in this area will be something that we'll have to keep an eye on. Now it's time for my one sports fact. So every now and then, I have tried to cover, when I've been doing this podcast, a story of redemption or resilience that happens in sports. Now, usually it is to overcome something like a drug problem or family loss or potentially in a competitive crushing defeat. But today I want to talk about instead a team and a coach that could have sunk into irrelevance and they didn't. Now, partially, I'm sure I'm doing this because the person that helps me put these podcasts together went to the University of Indiana, so I'm trying to annoy her because I'm going to talk about Indiana State University, which is one of the rivals of the University of Indiana. And if you watch college basketball, when you think of Indiana State, you think of the legend Larry Bird. He led them all the way to the finals 45 years ago, where they lost to Magic Johnson, who was leading Michigan State at the time. Indiana State has not been ranked in 45 years in the top 25 since Larry Bird left. But this year, they're ranked. So it is, again, this program, which has not been to the NCAA tournament, which in the United States is kind of the biggest thing in college basketball for a dozen years and hasn't been ranked for 45 years, has come back. And that's largely because of the shooting talent and the good players on the team and their coach, a third-year coach named Josh Schertz. Now, I found this story about Josh Schertz, and it was very interesting because he grew up a nationally ranked tennis player, not basketball player, but tennis player. At some point when he was a teenager, he burned out. He couldn't take it anymore. He didn't want to be the top tennis player in the world. Instead, he wanted to just be a regular teenager. And unfortunately, his parents kind of gave up on him. Now, one of them had drug problems, and one of them basically wanted him to become a professional tennis player, and he didn't want to do that. So they sort of gave up on him. So he rebuilt his life, learned something about basketball, and even though he was never a major player by any stretch of the imagination, he then learned that he still loved being competitive, but it was going to be in a different thing. And so he went on to figure out how to do that in basketball. And he coached at small little schools in the United States and did such an amazing job that he has actually been named four times as national coach of the year, at least for smaller schools. And now here he is in his third year as the coach of Indiana State University, and he has led them out of irrelevance. And obviously, he has shown, frankly, his dad and his mom that he also is very relevant. By the way, the good thing is he and his dad have reconciled and they now supposedly have a good relationship. Anyway, I thought that it was an interesting story and worth bringing to everybody's attention. Maybe we can take a page from Josh Schertz's book and Indiana State's book and remember the joy of sports and the importance of resilience through hardship and finding ways to be quite relevant once again. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. I really want to thank Garbus and Yvonne for the very, very fascinating and educational approach that they gave us on the Middle East. And as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and goodbye. 